Hello and welcome to Let's Talk Robotics. I'm your host, Nikki, and I hope you're well wherever you're on the world today. Welcome to episode 99. My guest today is Dr. Mark Masseri. Mark has worked for over two decades to bring robots and other technologies to assist humans in dangerous tasks and extreme environments. He is the head of robotics and technology development at Woodside Energy. He was formerly the head of the Intelligent Robotics Group at NASA Ames, Program Manager at DARPA, and Engineering Manager of the SPHERES International Space Station Facility. He has been active in the cybersecurity community for over 30 years. For 20 years, he demonstrated his commitment to developing solutions to mitigate social challenges through his involvement as a search and rescue specialist. Mark, welcome and thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me on. Listen, uh, to my audience, that is just a very brief capsule of his, uh, his bio. Um, his whole bio will be in the show notes. Please do have a look at it. Um, he's got a gazillion publications and contributed to uh, chapters and books. So please feel free to uh, scroll through that as well. Mark, you've had a very interesting and varied career to date. Um, I think we're going to start off our discussion today with you being a US a senior US government official and advisor to the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy, uh, the Department of Defense, Department of Homeland Security, and National Aeronautics and Space Administration on Strategic Technology, Technological and Partnership Developments. Tell us a little bit about that. <laughs> it's quite the mouthful. Yeah. <laughs> um, a lot of the, I'll, I'll say, especially the White House and a lot of the Department of Defense work was while I was at DARPA. Um, one of the gifts that you have kind of as a, a DARPA program manager um, is you're really kind of, you're influencing entire fields. And I think what I underestimated was going into that position, um, when you're influencing fields like entire fields of, of study, um, you're also influencing policy. Um, and so a lot like the work, for instance, with the Office of Science and Technology Policy or OSTP as they call it, um, that was related to um, unmanned air vehicles and what kind of threat they posed um, to you know US airspace um, and um, I'll just say high value uh, places like the White House. Um, so this was about the time, uh, uh, almost nobody remembers this, but um, there was uh, someone landed a DJI drone on the White House lawn um, so many years ago. Um, and uh, I had, unfortunately, had just got done doing a, a whole program pitch that was all about the uh, the rapid innovation that was happening. This was about the time that the Arju pilots and some of the other flight controllers were just coming into vogue, very low cost, dramatically high performance, um, you know, uh, controllers for doing autonomous flight and other things like that. Um, and I was beginning to sound the, 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 the whistle on the idea that while this is amazing, and as a roboticist and uh, someone who grew up flying helicopters and drones and other things like that, um, that this could also be used for bad things. Um, and so, and I, I jokingly said it was going to take somebody landing one of these on the White House lawn for people to care about it. Um, unbeknownst to me, that then happened. And let's just say you get a phone call from your boss saying, hey, 
uh, they want you up at the White House to have a little bit of a conversation. Um, and so it was a really, I'll say for myself, it was a gift uh, and a really great opportunity under the Obama administration uh, just to help policymakers understand both the awesomeness um, and what could be kind of threat models and other things that these kind of aircraft might pose, you know, to our future. So tell me, um, once you've, once an administration is uh, changed at the White House, do your policies stay in, in place or does everything change there? I'm always fascinated but, but, but by what Americans do and the amount of money that I, I possibly think is wasted in the meantime. But please tell me that I'm wrong. <laughs> um, it depends. And, and, and I, I realize that's not, a, that's not the answer that anybody probably wants to hear. Um, on, the, on things that are usually threat-based, um, those tend to stay, and that's because the technology, once it's established that the technology is capable of the thing um, that someone has dreamed up, like in this case, uh, the idea that you could have something autonomously land on the White House lawn, and that's not a fiction, and it's not been demonstrated to be true, um, you'll find those things will stick pretty solidly. Um, if you've got, let's say, decisions, whether they be based in technology or otherwise, um, that might sit across partisan lines, um, those are the ones where you will then see the new administration form a study. That study may conclude differently than the previous administration's study had determined. Um, and then you'll watch those, those laws or those rules either removed or reversed or otherwise. Um, and so there's a little bit of a, the, the pendulum sometimes swings both ways. So what may be just blatantly obvious to one administration uh, may be pr pretty dramatically reversed in another. Um, I'll admit that my time, that the time that I was there was under one administration. So I was there uh, more under the Obama administration. Um, and that was a bit of a utopia uh, for technologists. Um, I have to say of, of, of my entire career arc, uh, the time that I was able to work under that administration is frankly some of the most joyous of my career. And it's because it was a bringing together of frankly, some of the most brilliant people I've ever worked with in my life. Oh, well, kudos to them if they listen to this podcast to the, today. Um, I, I think with President Biden's inauguration, um, there was a massive drone show as well. Do you know anything about that? Um, I think I, I heard it on some talk I was listening to and just the ins and outs of getting this whole thing approved and the rules and regulations around it. I mean, drones are still, I, I have to say, when I was, when I was fighting these battles, you know, this is now, gosh, we got to be approaching eight years ago. Mm -hmm. um, it's amazing to me that the technology continues to get better um, from a, I'll say from a threat standpoint. Um, that means that these things are much, much more capable. I, actually, if you look at the work that's happening right now uh, in the Ukraine, we're watching consumer drones do things that were previously only the realm of, you know, multi-million dollar, you know, to, uh, air, airborne targeting systems and, and uh, manned aircraft and other things like that. Um, so it's a bit of a it's a bit of a brave new world right now as the technology is getting uh, better. Where the the whole concept of counter UAV. So how do you detect that it's there? How do you then counter the if you knew it was there um, and things like that? Those While there are some solutions out there, I would say that's a relatively unsolved problem in the, the larger scheme of things. And so whenever you talk about anything that says president near drones, <laughs> um, yeah. you're probably going to have a lot of uh, folks having questions about, okay, well, how are we mitigating uh, the fact that one of these drones might be taken over, let's say, by someone else, or just in the case of, of failure? 
you know, what happens if one of those uh, fails in a way that, you know, renders uh, either the, the the folks watching or uh, anybody unsafe? Um, you know, we get, we, although it is, we are all very familiar with, and most of us have used drones, even in recreation activities, you just have to remember that you're putting something that's about a kilo in the air at some pretty decent heights. Mm-hmm. Um, and it at terminal velocities can, you know, still do damage to, to things on the ground. Yeah, definitely. So um, your work uh, uh, in the space administration, NASA in particular, um, and our use of robots there, um, we're all very familiar with the Mars robot that's up there, but talk to us a little bit about other robots that have been sent up and will be sent up that we may not all be aware of. So there's a huge, uh, we, we actually adore the fact that um, a lot of attention is, is placed on our rovers. Um, we, we like to proudly say that, you know, Mars is uh, the, one of the only planets solely inhabited by robots. Um, and that's an awesome sentence to, to talk about. Um, the ones that kind of are a little less in the limelight, although it's getting a little bit more attention, um, is the robots that we have on our crewed spacecraft. So the International Space Station, for instance, has three um, robots called Astrobees. Um, and so these are what we call free flyers. So um, it turns out in robotics, once you get rid of that gravity vector that keeps sticking everything to the floor, um, it opens up some really wonderful design freedoms. Um, and so Astrobee is a robot that's able to quite literally fly around. Um, in the International Space Station. Its original design um, was to solve a couple things. One, it's to allow um, astronauts to be able to access parts of station that they might not be able to otherwise access. Um, You've got the uh, scenario of it being able to autonomously go around and do tasks. So imagine the equivalent of an airborne uh, Roomba that can go around and can clean, do inspections. Um, one of the, the one of the difficult things on, uh, believe it or not, and the International Space Station is keeping track of inventory. So what things are on the ISS and where are they? So that you don't waste a lot of time going and looking for that spanner wrench or that torque screwdriver um, or whatever. If the robot's able to keep track of that via RFID or other technologies like that, then that's hugely useful to ground controllers and astronauts. And then of course, the final use case, and this will probably be one near and dear to your heart is the idea of telepresence. Mm -hmm. So currently, um, if uh, let's say there is a red light that comes on one of the racks in one of the ISS modules, um, and it's not able to be diagnosed from the ground, um, basically Capcom, who is the person that usually, who talks to the astronauts normally, um, has to go interrupt an astronaut from what they're doing and say, hey, can you go over to rack number seven in the GEM module and help us determine what's going on with this particular piece of equipment? that model changes when you've got robots there. So now the idea can be that ground controller can say, basically let um, the rest of the, the crew know, hey, one of the astrobees is going to be activated in a second. And then that ground controller uh, can, from a telepresence standpoint, then fly he or herself over to the rack and begin investigating whatever is going on. Um, Astrobee um, actually came out of um, my group at the Intelligent Robotics Group out at NASA Ames. Um, and it is probably, you can kind of think of it about like a second or third generation. Um, it was built on the shoulders of a project that I actually started on called Smart Spheres. And then before that, there was the MIT Spheres uh, program that was actually born out of uh, MIT. And that was using a free flyers, but a different technology for its propulsion. Um, and so, so there's that. So that's kind of team free flyer. 
Um, the other robots that doesn't usually get as much attention um, is the humanoid platforms. Uh, so this was largely pioneered by Johnson Space Center. Um, and this is Robonaut, Valkyrie, and some of the other um, humanoid-shaped robots or humanoid-inspired robots that are there. The, the philosophical bent for those robots is that if you were in an environment that was inherently engineered for human beings, then from a design standpoint, it behooves you um, to begin your engineering exercise for your robot in the shape of a human. Mm -hmm. And then that way, every screwdriver, every hammer, every drill that is on that, that, that uh, spacecraft is now able to be used in its original form by the robot. That's a little bit different from like the philosophy that Astrobe has, where Astrobe effectively looks like a cube. And so it's a relatively, you know, I don't want to say featureless, but it doesn't have arms and legs and five fingers like, a, like you would in a humanoid form. Um, the, the part of the whole reason why this is important is NASA, uh, so in its, uh, especially its moon to Mars uh, missions that it's looking for in the near future, um, we have a, a, a human rated spacecraft called Gateway. And you can kind of think Gateway as like a, a, a mobile home or a temporary home for humans as they're getting ready then to go to Mars. Um, and that, that spacecraft by definition is gonna be minimally crude. And so what, what, what happens when the humans are not there? How do, you, how do you pull things? How do you move inventory and supplies and, and other things onto the spacecraft when there's no human there to do it? And the answer may be robotics. Um, and so both for Astrobe and for Robonaut and all of the generations of humanoid robots, um, that's really, there's, there's so many wonderful green pastures out there in terms of uh, great research and contributions to the field um, that'll be done. Um, we're going to actually stay just geographically in the United States before we flip to Australia, where you're now living. Um, you were a firefighter, or you are a firefighter, um, and you were actually involved in the World Trade Center 20 years ago, um, as we we're just talking um, ground zero for 11 days. Um, tell us a little bit about search and rescue robots, uh, how they progressed since that time, and, and what was even available at that time. Yep. So that that goes back to my um, the work mm -hmm. that I did for my master's degree. Um, and um, and it's funny, back then we were trying to leverage Department of Defense equipment. So specifically, there was a lot of explosive ordnance robots that were coming out at that time. Um, the original um, iRobot Packbot, um, the Fo uh, Foster Miller uh, Talon, which is now uh, Cunetic, um, and, and some other equipment. Um, interestingly, we ended up not using a lot of the explosive ordnance equipment. It ended up being the much, much smaller um, robots that were used for like pipe inspection, for like industrial inspection. Um, and we ended up uh, using that equipment up there for 11 days um, in Retrospect, this seems obvious, but we we actually we only we were only able to find remains. Uh, so there were no survivors per se after the the first twenty four to forty eight hours uh, to go find. Um, and but what we were able to do um, successfully was um, to find remains that presumably brought closure to uh, the families that lost loved ones um, and other other folks that, in that disaster. Um, since then, so after the Trade Center and after I finished my master's degree, I actually started a robotics company. Mm -hmm. um, and for about four, four and a half years, um, we fought really, really hard to bring robots to fire rescue, search and rescue, emergency response in general. Um, the, there's, there's good news and bad news. The good news is most of the technology that we developed um, is sitting 
in various places around the world um, on the ready to be used. Um, the before mentioned um, unmanned air vehicles, especially drones, um, those did those were not really as much in existence when we were uh, working back, uh, certainly in the Trade Center. Um, but uh, but now that's much much more ubiquitous, and your ability to get situation awareness over the disaster area um, is much easier now than it certainly would have been back then. Um, the unfortunate part, and I'll I'll admit the the fact that I talked about my company in past tense, um, should tell you that things didn't quite work out the way we wanted it to. Um, it turns out that the market for search and rescue robots is really, really difficult. Um, the, uh, I'll say the fire rescue community um, has a, um, a little bit of a difficult time purchasing I'll just say specialized pieces of equipment like this. Mm -hmm. um, as a small business, I, it, although I'll admit that we came at it from a this is a technology play, like we just need to build the technology and they will come. Um, and the difficult part was on the adoption side of things um, and the ability for uh, the procurement of this equipment to happen in a timely fashion. Our sales cycles were so long, like it would take basically a year from first contact with a customer for them to be able to now start talking about a purchase order or other things like that, um, that for a small business where, especially for these very specialized and very ruggedized pieces of equipment, just the, um, the sheer amount of money that's required, that the bankroll that you need to be able to successfully survive a year between the initial contact and the sale. Um, I'll just say that we were, we were ill-equipped uh, to work within that market uh, for the kind of investment and other things that we had. Um, the technology, unfortunately, so in some ways the technology has improved. You can now go buy a robot that um, can be used for, let's say, firefighting. Um, that didn't exist back then. Um, it's largely being used for like airports and other places where you have high intensity uh, fire and other things like that. Um, but, um, but there are kind of these smaller data points of places in which robotics is making a positive influence on, on certainly fire rescue. Um, I'll admit that even now, 20 years later, um, I, I can remember back then speaking on 10 year horizons in which um, I expected there to be a robot on every fire rescue vehicle that rolled up to, you know, any emergency that was happening. Um, unfortunately, now, two decades later, um, that's definitely not the case. Um, and that's a little bit disappointing, but that's, but the good news is in the research community and the academic community, um, I'm actually pleasantly surprised to see that the the difficulty of search and rescue and the difficulty of those very unstructured environments still present grand challenges to roboticists and people coming up in, in the robotics world um, that know and want to explore, like, how do we model those worlds uh, for dramatically high levels of uncertainty? How do you do path planning? Um, how are you sensing in a world in which you've possibly got water and dirt and contaminants and everything else actively kind of messing up your sensors as you're going through those worlds? Um, it's really kind of a holy grail. And so while the industry isn't, isn't quite there in terms of commercial products, um, I do think that there's a lot of really, really wonderful kind of, again, green pastures as far as good research that can be done in that space. Um Look, unfortunate for you, and, and this is probably a tale of many, is that you, the ground, you're putting the groundwork in for maybe 10 or 15 or even 20 years later, someone goes, oh, we should have done that, and you've already done it. But as you say, who can sustain a year's buying cycle? No one. Like, that, your companies just can't do that. I think the one space um, 
in firefighting that I think has really taken off and being utilized is for drones. I think I think just because they're so small and agile and, you know, as you said, ground zero, flying around, checking out what's going on, what sort of fires are you dealing with? Um, you know, is it a petrol or, you know, different fires that the firemen need to know what gear they need to be protecting themselves. Um, and I, I, I think I did see a YouTube video of a drone actually picking up a fire hose. It was just a uh, you know, simulated fire and it trying to extinguish it. I don't actually know whether it happens in, in practice. So the, having, having gone through uh, fire school, um, I can tell you a, a hose, a firefighter's hose full of water is way heavier than you think it is. It's mm. certainly, especially when you've got to move it or drag it. Um, so I would say it would take quite the, quite the drone or quite the lifting capability for it to be able to do that. Um, the real grift that I think the drones gave immediately, and this was one where even out of the box, um, I was working with some of the, the firefighter groups out of California, um, and uh, they, they had to, one of the barriers that they had was, um, frankly, the FAA even allowing them to fly. So the Federal um, um, Aviation Administration um, giving them clearance under those kind of situations to be able to fly, especially when you've got um, helicopters, so you've got news helicopters, you've got other um, emergency air vehicles and other things that may be in the area by virtue of an emergency happening there also, how do you deconflict that airspace? And so um, a couple of groups I know uh, from a firefighting standpoint managed to work through all of that. Um, and the real gift that it gave them was they were able to very quickly get very broad situation awareness. So, you know, a lot of, you can tell a lot about what's going on in a fire by where the smoke is coming from. What is the color of the smoke? Is it breaking through the, the, um, the, the roof of the building? And if so, where? Um, and normally that would require people to get up on ladders or, or to get up on these roofs um, and to start chainsawing through uh, the roofs to, to allow, uh, you know, things to basically the air and the gases to escape and things like that. Um, they still do that. But what the drones really are allowing them to do is to do that in a much, much safer way, because now they can get a basically eyes in the air, let's say a couple hundred feet above the building, um, they would never be able to do that. Even, even the high, most of the highest ladder uh, trucks that are working, those are about 110 feet. Um, and so now you could easily double or triple that height and get much broader situation awareness. And that literally makes the difference between life and death uh, for the folks that are managing these emergencies and just knowing where, and most importantly, where not to put their personnel. Um, I think that's, that's the real gift that we got as soon as these started becoming ubiquitous. Um, and now you're starting to see with the, with the cost coming down on thermal imaging, um, and other kind of hyperspectral imagers, um, you now, they, you now have capabilities for especially those incident commanders to make decisions in ways that they would have never been able to have that kind of insight even 10 years ago. Yeah. And I think bearing in mind for most of us, and I'll speak for myself here, I, don't, I haven't actually been at a fire, a, a, a site where you, you're talking about 110 meters where you're actually sending someone up that ladder. I mean, you know, we see it in the movies. We think, oh, that's so easy. I don't think anyone's got any idea how heavy your gear is. Um, I live in an area in, in Melbourne where it's, it's high fire danger, Mount Dandenong. And um, I actually went on a course. I know how heavy this, this house is. And I actually needed someone to help me to lift up the hose. And you think, oh, no, you can do this. The sheer strength and velocity of the water coming out of that hose, you better have a firm grip on it. 
Yep. And I, I, one of the things that they do, and it's usually in your firefighter two courses, um, is they'll just have you, and this is just with your bunker gear on, they'll just have you climb to the top. Um, and I apologize. It was 110 feet. So I was doing the, Sorry, the, yeah. the, the American version. Yeah. Um, even at that height, which when you look at it, you're like, yeah, I can climb that. I climb ladders. That should be easy. Um, that just the getting yourself up that ladder, um, you're, you'll feel it in your legs by the time you get to the top. The part that I always appreciate from that standpoint then is um, you've got heat, you've got wind, you've got convection and all other things that are happening while you're at the top of that ladder. And then now you're going to go operate a um, presumably some type of, uh, you know, water suppression equipment from the top. Um, just the level of concentration and frankly the level of danger that you're in, um, as opposed to let's go pop that Pelican case open get the drone in the air and let's just set it to hover um, over the site until, uh, you know, until it runs out of batteries. Um, that by anyone's math is a much, much safer situation and frankly gets you a much higher fidelity um, understanding of what's going on in the world. So definitely. Now jumping to Australia, how did you end up here? And um, are you continuing with your firefighting journey here? Because we sure as hell need people like you here. <laughs> well, I will say the one thing that I discovered after coming out here is Australia, and I, I knew Australia's, especially the wildfire teams out here, are legendary. Yeah. Um, so I would actually say that Australia is in a very, very good place um, mm. in terms of the capability of the the crews and the the folks that you have out here. Um, the so how I came out to Australia. So um, the there was a, a a gentleman who came out from NASA headquarters um, to and was was very interested in uh, contributing to new energy, uh, carbon capture, and other things like that. Um, and he, about a year after he came out, he uh, basically called up um, myself and another gentleman who had worked on um, a whole bunch of different carbon-related and, and science-related projects for NASA. Um, and the, the mantra that the three of us kind of had was, um, while it was great for us to spend the rest of our careers figuring out how to get human beings off the planet, um, we were concerned that we were going to have a planet around long enough to make that dream happen. Um, and so feeling like at least I had um, made a, a pretty decent contribution to humanities and robotics's abilities to operate in space, um, I thought it was good to switch it up a little bit and work on saving the planet. Um, and so a lot of the work and a lot of my passion in being out here and especially in Australia, working in new energy um, and being in a lot of the where, where I'm out in Perth. Um, so it's very much out in out here. It's a lot of resources. So mining, um, you know, uh, energy and other other things like that, um, trying to figure out how we can do this, uh, maintain what we need to maintain economically um, while minimizing the negative impact that we're having on the planet. Um, I will admit that when uh, when my friend first called me and he says, hey, they've got this, uh, you know, there's there's these companies out in Perth and they're looking at trying to do this new energy thing. I'll admit that I had to Google up very quickly. OK, where is Perth? What is this place? <laughs> um, and now that I'm out here and have been uh, in December, it'll be three years uh, that I've been living out here. Um, I have to say I've kind of fallen in love with Australia. Uh, there's a bit of a, uh, you know, uh, can do it-ness uh, to the to the attitudes out here um that i really really appreciate and i'm, I'm learning to very quickly adore so well i'm delighted you decided to come out here mark and um, i i fully concur with you and i think 
in particular, um, this podcast series is all about the roboticists and people that work in this community. And I'm always astounded at A, the level of talent that we have and um, B, that most people are just sort of, they're just flying below the radar, just going about their business. And then you go like, where did you come from? You know, like I, um, yeah, Daniel Milford was a, my guest uh, two weeks ago. He's also based in Perth. He's just doing absolutely incredible things there. Um, but you need to be in the robotics community to know about it, which I think is actually a great sadness. So I'm hoping my podcast is going out far and wide and everyone's getting to know all of you and just uh, recognizing what how great you are. Cool. Well, I, I can tell you that there is, a, I had heard rumors that especially you know the 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 story that at least i had heard before i came out here was um you know the mining sector especially out here in western australia um that there's autonomous trains they've got autonomous uh you know all we all hear about the autonomous dump trucks uh and autonomous mining equipment um and after coming out here and seeing it and seeing the scale of the operation um the thing that i realized is that australia probably more than just about any other country i've ever visited um definitely has robotics here I, it's one of those things where robotics is part of the economy um you don't get to discount the fact that you know most of that material is is being moved in the various parts of the process by equipment that does not have a human being on board. Um, and that's huge, both literally and figuratively, um, in terms of just the, the awesomeness of uh, robotics finding a place in which there's a need. Uh, you know, you've got adoption, you've got operating models, and then most importantly, you've got the technology, which presumably will keep uh, getting better and better. Um, what I found, you, you hinted at it, but what I find is that most of the Australians that I've met that are out here solving these really, really difficult engineering problems um, are almost like dramatically understated um in their pride for the work that they've done um and if if i've provided nothing else to australia i want to believe that I've, I've for the people that i've talked to that I help, i've helped remind them uh that what they're doing is dramatically awesome um and that they, you know those pieces of equipment and that capability and just the contribution that they are making to australia's economy um is is huge it's it's it it really can't be overstated in terms of where the potential of that uh lies Look, Australians are known for their, they, they do fly under the radar because we do have this nasty little thing called tall poppy syndrome. And I don't know if you've, if you've heard of it or I hope you haven't encountered it, but it's basically if you get too big for your boots, you're going to be smacked down. So, um, you know, so I don't know whether it's got something to do with it or it's just um, maybe just the type of, you know, sort of engineering background type of people working on this. And, you know, they couldn't be bothered to get all high and mighty. You know, they felt busier thinking, okay, how am I going to solve the next problem? Yep. I, I can tell you an, uh, an example I will give you is, um, and it's kind of um, been public knowledge through some press releases and, and things, uh, Fugro has been uh, using um, basically uncrewed surface vessels, so basically uncrewed boats mm -hmm. uh, for some of their um, ROV operations. They're all their subsea, and these are like work-class ROVs. And I remember um, going to and talking with some of their engineers about some of the real, really, really hard problems they've had to solve, um, specifically with regards to satellite communications and latency and 
and other things like that. As, as myself, having kind of come from the human-robot interaction side of the house, as I was listening to how they're able to, and they have capabilities of kind of dynamically tuning whether they want high resolution or higher low compression or higher low latency and other things like that. Um, the, what they didn't realize they were doing was a really, really deep, like almost a subset of human-robot interaction and human-computer interaction um, research. But some of the things that they solved in terms of like the video compression engines and other things like that, you know, they described it and then they kind of went, yeah. And so, so we just solved that, that, that just sits in a rack and it, it just kind of does the thing. And I'm sitting there aghast, like my chin is on the table um, with regards to, first of all, the fact that they just in passing mentioned that they just solved that video compression problem. Um, and, are, and I'm looking at live video that's, you know, at, at really, really great resolution and everything else. Um, and then had to pause and say, look, I like I've worked in NASA mission control and NASA doesn't have capabilities that are rivaling the kind of things that you're just mentioning in passing here or whatever. And it kind of took them realizing that they really did have something special, I think, for them to pause and go, huh, OK, yeah, I guess we really did solve a really hard problem there. Um, so anyway, I think it's one of the it's both one of the most awesome aspects of my Australian experience, and um, I'll say one of the most anticlimactic uh, for uh, certainly the people that are developing these things, because I, uh, I keep encouraging them to, at the very least, smile a little bit and know that they are making a dent in the universe in terms of the capabilities that they're building. Yeah, listen, you know what, and not, if it takes an American to acknowledge Australians, then of course they'll, they'll believe it. It's a, it's a very typical thing that Australians actually have to leave the country and come back before people, I don't know, I don't know why it is like that, but anyway, it's just, you need to go out. I think just go and have a holiday. Say you did a bit of work and come back and then we'll, we'll, everyone will be just delighted that you're back here in Australia. Yep. Yeah. Uh, speaking of capabilities and the DARPA team, um, the Australian team that did so well, um, last year that they came um do you know about the team that they came on past second but would put to second they came first but due to like 20 seconds went to second place the um the work that they've been doing there again and i think people have sort of sat up and taken notice of this little australian team that had to be funded to get there and they did incredibly well is this the um the subterranean challenge yes the subterranean challenge Yep. So, I mean, I'd, I'd say on the one part, I think that's awesome because especially when you look at mining and a lot of the resource sector that's out here, um, on the one hand, you would look at that and go, well, obviously Australia would know how to do that. Um, but the answer is, it's that I'd say that's the naive answer. Um, and that's to say the work that was done and the advancements that was made in for, for the sub T challenge that of course is subterranean, um, you know, uh, you're, you're dealing in tunnels, relatively unstructured environments and other things like that. Um, the ability to do sensing and navigation and, um, and 3D modeling and everything else in those kind of environments is a nightmare. Um, and, and you're right, the, the, all of the teams, as I was following them um, through, through the, the course of research that they were doing, um, that was major. There, there was a couple like major, like we moved the decimal point on our understanding on, uh, you know, how to navigate in those kind of environments that not only has use, it, while it has usefulness, and the reason why DARPA was funding it uh, was because there's very kind of immediate needs in the defense worlds yeah. uh, for those kind of technologies. Uh, but then that immediately spills over uh, into the mining sector, into any sector. I look at it and it's like, well, 
when I think about especially collapsed buildings and collapsed structures and other things like that, where again, you, you're suddenly in a very semi-structured to unstructured environment and you need to model your way through that environment to get to some target goal where you're targeting the search and rescue case as a human uh that may be you know you, that may have survived um those are all things that are directly applicable and and directly benefit mankind's ability to kind of do the right thing and to get ourselves out of uh, situations that we may not have any control over um that's that's really awesome so yeah, congratulations again to the team. Now, Mark, you advised um, the Australian Space Agency. You gave, you did a bit of work with them. Um, tell us a little bit about that. And also just what do you think of the maturity of the work that we're doing in Australia now in this space? I'll admit this is one that kind of makes me laugh because I thought I was leaving space behind. I, I really did when I left NASA. I was like, okay, I'm done like that space thing. I'm going to talk about that now in the past tense. Um, and we're now moving on to, you know, saving the planet and energy. Uh, and then I and then I got over here and it turns out the that the Australian Space Agency is now becoming a, uh, a full-fledged uh, agency. Um, there was some work being done by uh, Curtin and um, some of the other universities over here here related CubeSats. Um, and very quickly, I started getting looped into uh, meetings in which they were looking for folks who had experience uh, mm -hmm. in all of these things. And so um, I, I tease them on, on a very regular basis that, you know, I tried desperately to leave uh, space behind me in the US and somehow uh, I mean, it managed to follow me literally to the other side of the planet. Um, the, the, I would say that for anyone that is looking at space robotics or satellites or anything like that, um, I'm a little envious because Australia is kind of the place to be. Mm -hmm. um, the Australian Space Agency is, while it is still trying to figure out what its mission scope is and how to fund programs, you've, you've got an agency who's really kind of finding its footing. Um, I'd say the advantage for Australia is it's got a lot of really great um, models and great examples mm -hmm. of other agencies. And it can kind of, Australia can kind of pick and choose um, the best of all of the different models that are out there. Um, and that's, I, I know folks like to kind of place NASA on a pedestal with regards to the things that it's accomplished. Um, but like any large government bureaucracy, um, it's got a lot of flaws. And it's got a lot of things that it on the regular tries to or is trying to overcome. Um, the fact that commercial space is now a term and the fact that you see so many different companies that are now playing into um, commercial offerings for space, especially launch and other things like that, um, tells you that NASA might not have been doing everything that it needed to do correctly to fulfill all the missions that it needed to. So the good news for Australia, and I think um, if there's any kind of a subject matter expertise or advice that I've been able to provide, um, especially the Australian Space Agency, but I think all of the different groups that are trying to work with the Australian Space Agency um, is just the what what I saw that worked well for NASA and ESA and the other um, the other different um, space agencies that I had the pleasure of working with, um, but most importantly, what didn't work well and helping them avoid uh, the parts of those um, organizations that slowed things down or didn't allow funding to get to, you know, the people that needed to do the work fast enough and other things like that. Um, as some of the some of the grant proposals and other things that are out on the the street right now, um, Trailblazer being one of them. So that's a, a lunar rover uh, getting to the moon. Uh, the thing that I like to remind 
everyone involved in that is that's literally one of the hardest things that you can do in space. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, I smile and say, um, it's, it's also very Australian to say, no, nope, we're not going to do the easy stuff. Uh, what we're going to do, we're going to go ahead and we're just going to tackle that really, really hard thing. And we're going to do it right out of the gate. Yeah. Um, that, that's a, that's a, a hell of a position to go in. Um, but I can tell you that Australia and everyone involved in uh, putting that lunar rover um, on the moon, that that's, that's, that's going to be a lot of lessons learned. Um, and a, I'll just say a really wonderful flight heritage that then Australia gets to carry forward. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And I think um, South Australia, like they're hot to trot with the work that they're doing in space down there. I think South Australia is setting itself up as the place, um, you know, like Queensland is for robotics. I think South Australia is for space. Yep. And I, I think it, it's uh, what I'm excited about. Australia was already well known for, I'd say, if I think back to my time in the US, I knew Australia for really two things in that in, in that sector. One was astronomy. So it's not by accident that especially the radio telescopes and even the optical telescopes that are used out here are world-class. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that there's not a lot of human beings and a lot of light pollution down here. And you have really, really, really talented um, astronomers that are that are working that equipment. So it was already known for that. The other thing was the um, planetary geologists. So the fact that it is so, you, you have some of the best geologists in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and that has a lot to do with kind of the gravitational force that is the resource sector out here too but it turns out understanding how geology on the earth works then hugely improves your ability to understand when you're looking at other planets or other bodies that are out in the 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 universe um and so i actually like the idea that with australia already having kind of a word up in terms of those qualifications and those expertise the expertise that we have already in the country in that regard um the idea that now robotics and the ability to have um, rovers and satellites and other things like that um, beginning to contribute to those already well-established foundational science pieces. Um, I think that's great. That's, that's a kind of a one-two punch that I think will carry, uh, that'll carry Australia's ability to contribute in the space community really, really far. Yeah, we certainly have. Um, I released a talk last week uh, with Professor Virginia Coolborn, who's uh, an astrophysicist. So just speaking of the talent we have here, um, um, I'm well aware of it. And I, yeah, again, um, Australians don't have to be shy for the talents that they have. No, it's the, there's some really gifted, like I said, really gifted people. And then the environment itself just lends itself to being a great simulator. So you can go up in the Pilbara and you've probably got one of the closest simulations to what Mars would look like, uh, you know, anywhere in the world. It's one of the best, you know, um, simulations you can find. Um, That's going to hugely inform uh, our ability to succeed in those later missions that we haven't even planned yet. Yeah. Now, just a bit of a sidetrack before um, in your career, cybersecurity. Um, we mentioned in uh, in the beginning that you've had a 30-year interest in, and I consider you an absolute expert in this field. Now, talk to us a little bit about it and how has it influenced robots? And then, of course, we just have to talk about the Optus saga that we've all just lived through in, in Australia. But um, tell us a little bit about your career then. Well, so it's funny. I, I want to I guess I can confidently say that my original interest in computers, um, and this is back in the 
the the the, the mid to late 90s um a lot of that was based around and i'll say more classical hacking so not necessarily cyber crime or cyber security as we would call it today um because that really wasn't a term back then um but it's more the idea that you know breaking systems and and invalidating assumptions with regards to those systems um and then seeing and playing in a very creative space in that kind of gray area between, well, this was this is what the system was designed to do, but this is what I want it to do, and how can I bend kind of the rules of the game to make this computer do what I want it to do? Um, that was a that was a very kind of core philosophy, I guess, that I managed to latch on to very early on. And I found that back then there, the hacking community was very young, but there were a lot like-minded individuals that kind of played out in that space. Now, um, I'll make myself feel a little old here, and, and that's to say security and what we now call cybersecurity wasn't a field, like it wasn't a career path. Mm. Um, it was cybersecurity was the thing that the IT guys did when they weren't, you know, setting up new servers and making the network not break. Um, and so I'll admit that um, it was really around the late 90s that I really kind of became burned out and decided they, they have the saying that the, you know, the best way to ruin a, a hobby is to make it your job. <laughs> and I, I realized that that's what I had done to myself. I loved hacking. I loved computers. I loved all of this computer science stuff that I was doing, but it wasn't fun anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I had grown up with radio control cars and, um, and kind of other kind of mechatronic like things. Um, I took an elective course. This was like the last term of my undergraduate. Uh, so I was a senior. I needed an elective. There was this robotics course. And I was like, well, robotics. I mean, those are basically just radio control cars with computers on them. Right. Um, And naively went into what was probably one of the most life changing courses that I've taken. It is, I think, in terms of career paths, um, it set me off on a different direction. And I realized that what I could do was take the cybersecurity, um, put it aside. Um, and begin investigating this robotics thing, which was absolutely both entertaining and filling every you know intellectual um, curiosity that I had at the time. Um, luckily, then I would say probably about three or four years later, um, I kind of allowed myself to go back into. Uh, some of the cybersecurity type things, whatever. And I found my love for that again also. Now, where it all crosses over, and this is an area of interest, and it was part of what I was advising. You heard like a little thread there with regards to unmanned air vehicles and what kind of threat they might pose to, let's say, the U.S. government or other things like that. Um, What I found was that with robotics, it creates a very interesting kind of threat vector um, that that even today I would say there's huge green pastures here. And that's to say, when we talk about cybersecurity, we usually think about people in networks uh, hacking servers that are probably sitting in a data center somewhere. They're usually static. And one of the things I like to think about is now, do, does the model, does the threat model change when you now allow that server to have legs and go walk around a... Uh, let's say an LNG plant or a nuclear facility or a department of defense, you know, military facility. Um, Does your threat model change when the server can walk? Um, And the answer is yes. Um, And there's some very interesting assumptions that are made on the part of folks who design these secure facilities where they assume that a computer, if it's going to walk around in a plant that it requires a human being to be attached to it. Um, or, Or they assume that the servers can't fly. 
right? So you think of a lot of um, security threats and other things like that that require proximity. A lot of times the proximity is solved through physical security and that physical security is usually solved by making sure that humans can't get into that site. Um, but robotics do a wonderful job of kind of short circuiting that assumption. Um, and so anyway, so long story short, it's a, it's an interesting play space that I've been especially exploring as of late, um, which is to say, if we look across all of the different threats that are out there um, and the different models that we use in terms of how we protect these systems, does the ability for a computer to literally fly in uh, completely invalidate these the or the security that's been put in place? Um, and we've, both of my time at DARPA and uh, during my time in my uh, current job, um, we've got some really strong data points that say that we may not, we may need to start rethinking the way we do uh, some of these uh, cybersecurity threat modeling. Um, you know, assuming that the the servers can't move. So, yeah, threat assessment, and I I, I would think that would be um, high on the agenda for all Australian companies, um, whether it's asset based or companies such as Optus. Um, I was reading someone, um, a comment on a Twitter feed. Someone was saying, anyone who is renting in Australia knows the rigmarole to rent, what you actually have to provide these companies in terms of your bank details, what you earn, your, it's phenomenal, Mark. I don't know. Like It's just a horrendous amount of information they sit with. Who is securing this information? Well, and what, and here's the unfortunate part is I don't know that there's any universal standard for how you secure that information. So, so that's, I guess, the, to one of the continuing frustrations um, is that, you know, that for there to be a standard that if this kind of personal identifiable information is stored on your server, then you are required to encrypt it at this level or required to provide these types of assurances or have these types of retention policies. I would say that's the biggest thing I think that was striking for me with regards to the Optus um, uh, incident was uh, just the longevity, just the, the, this doesn't only affect current customers, this affects customers who for years and years have not been Optus customers, um, and yet now have their data exposed. So even, so, and, and whether it be a technical solution or a legislative solution that says, mm -hmm. you know, it, it is not proper for an organization to hold onto information like that for greater than a year or two or five years after that person is longer, no longer a customer, at least drawing a line in the sand would be dramatically useful. Um, and and uh, here's the thing, and this is, I guess, maybe the important part, at least from my standpoint, is while it's it's fun to uh, kind of point a finger at Optus and say, you know, gosh, you you know, commercial telco company, you should have known better. Um, the US government, the State Department had the same thing happen to everyone that was a government employee that held security clearances. Mm -hmm. um, we know that all that entire database, including all of our all of our personal information going back a decade. It's probably one of the most invasive background checks uh, that you can have done to you in terms of for basically for your employment. Um, we know that that is now in the hands of the Chinese. Um, and so it's one of those where 
that's that's huge. And so I guess the the point I'm trying to make here is it's it's across everything. It's across government. It's across mm-hmm. commercial. And the fact that we don't have even soft lines in the sand that say if you store this information for greater than five years, you may be liable. Mm-hmm. Um, the fact that that doesn't exist is is kind of unfortunate. I think that's that's going to change in Australia. Um, I think the minister, um, I can't remember, Sam Clare, she was very vocal on um, national TV about, and I think a year was sort of being touted as that's as long as you need this information. And then, and of course, the punitive measures, I think $2 million a fine to Optus is an absolute, it's a joke, you know, no one's going to take that seriously but having said that um i think just as telstra was just getting high and mighty they they had a breach that the employees um their data had been hacked so uh, as you say um don't get too comfortable out there because if you've got anyone's data you get you're a target 100 percent, and it's uh, it's you, you have to be the the trick is to be vigilant also yep. um i can tell you myself it's funny for Gosh, probably about two months, I had to turn off my LinkedIn account. And it was because I was having some very crafty and very specific spear, spear phishing mm-hmm. um, that was happening to me. So spear phishing, of course, is emails that are being sent, not not over broad swaths of people like spam, uh, but actual very targeted emails that were coming to me trying to basically trick me into uh, clicking on links or for, you know, doing things in my email um, that, um, that would cause my machine to be compromised and then information to be stolen. So um, it's multiple levels. So it's, it's at the, like the Optus, Telstra, large corporation level but then it's also down to like you as an individual there there may be depending on what you're doing and depending on the work that you're doing um maybe looking very specifically to get it files on your own hard drive um and so the real trick now is i think that while we're growing and while a lot of these threat models are demonstrating themselves and and the other big thing now is cyber crime is now monetized in a way that we've never seen before mm-hmm. so ransomware and other things like that i remember that being just the realm of science fiction mm-hmm. uh, a, a decade ago <laughs> yeah. yeah a movie's been made about it so <laughs> and and yet now it's not only normal it's barely newsworthy um, that a large corporation would have all of its computers basically encrypted and then held for millions of dollars worth of ransom, where ransom now equals Bitcoin, which is relatively untraceable once you pay the ransom. Like the this this really would be a sci-fi novel of 10 or 15 years ago, um, and it's now a new reality that we live in. And so I'll say as a technologist and as a sci-fi buff, I kind of look at that and go, this is both awesome and frightening. Like this is the dystopia that I didn't think we would end up in. Um, and yet somehow we're being asked to manage even our own personal data in this kind of uh, this kind of crazy world. So, well, then then um, if you've watched uh, movies that you've got a single identity point and everything's linked to that, and it's uh, it's tattooed on your arm somewhere, let's and everyone scoffs and goes, "No, no, that's not going to happen." Mm, yeah, all the movies we've watched of sci-fi, we're seeing it play out. Yep. Yeah. I'd, let's just say, I hope we don't get to the levels of dystopia of some of the movies, at least that I love. Um, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I mean, when we look at our ability to be identified, whether that be through facial detection, um, we all carry a pocket or a purse full of RFID cards these days. Mm-hmm. Um, and so 
it's it's actually pretty easy to identify a person or at least identify that that is the same human that I saw before. Yeah. And whether that be for good, bad, or otherwise, um, the technology doesn't really care how it's used. It just cares that it's, you know, it's there and does its job. Um, that, you know, it's, to me, it's fascinating and it's it's something that us as technologists, um, it's good for us to keep asking the questions and to keep playing devil's advocate with regards to, um, you know, this could be bad. Do we want to be really concerned about how bad this can be or do we want to play to the positive? And I think there's always a balance there that you have to strike. Mark, I think that's as good as any place to end. I'm mindful of your time. You've been extremely generous. It's been an absolute delight speaking with you. I feel there's another episode um, next year sometime that I'm going to hit you up again and we're going to pick this up and, and talk about more maybe other work that you've been doing. Thank you very, very, very much for joining me. Thank you so much. I really appreciate how you having me on. To our audience, I hope you've enjoyed this episode as much as we have uh, delivering it to you. I hope you have a wonderful day. Wherever you are in the world, look after yourself and keep safe. Mm-hmm.